Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. Now, I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. It feels amazing to be in the destinies of X, and as such, we are celebrating with a predominantly X-Men week here on X's for Podcast. We're going to have a Mutant Monday today to kick things off. We're going to look at the debut issue of X-Men Red before turning things over to the second issue of the excellent, the follow-up to Mike Allred and Pete Milligan's incredible X-Force Ecstatics run. And these were two books that I loved so much. I got to be part of the excellent conversation, but I didn't get to be part of the excellent X-Men Red conversation. And getting to edit it was such a pleasure. I got to hear so many perspectives that I wouldn't have come to on my own. And one of the things that has been so exciting about this title is the way it's made me think about things and some of my expectations. Comparing the seats of the Krakoan Council to the seats of the Arachil Council is just so fascinating. And I love the way that the X team and specifically Al Ewing work so hard to give this council its own feeling. I really enjoy seeing the different members and their different positions with Iska in the seat of victory, Adil in the seat of stalemate, Tarn in the seat of loss, Lakuda in the seat of above us. Aurora, of course, in the seat of All Around Us, Sobinar in the seat of Below Us, Oresatera in the seat of Law, Xylo in the seat of History, and Lotus Logos in the seat of Dreams. This idea that the things that perhaps the Iraqi find important are not necessarily the same things that the Krakoans find important is really fascinating to me. The Krakoans are like, oh, we're going to create a system of balance where nature works in harmony and there is a an ebb and flow to the way we treat, you know, law. That's something that I think comes across in this idea of seasons and then having an odd number of people in each season does create for, you know, each season to have its own unique majority. I do think it's a little odd that then they have, you know, an even number of votes, but still, regardless, I do think that one of the important things about this group of nine is the things that each seat represent. Now, rather than the seasons, which represent maybe balance, like we said, or, you know, nature itself, it's it's as though the Iraqis see something much deeper in the ideas of what creates a central balance. The idea of victory and stalemate and loss. Victory, of course, and loss being sort of the perceived winner and loser of everything, you know, but stalemate, the idea that no one is the winner and yet no one is the loser, it's such an important thing that the X-Men live on. The X-Men live on just surviving. So I love that that's part of the way that something like the Iraqis see the function of government above us, all around us, and below us really symbolizes how nature is a part of their function. And that is something that the Krakoans also have, of course, as theirs are based on seasons. But it's really fascinating to see that the Krakoans seem to think of balance and nature all around them as the turning of the seasons, whereas the Iraqi see it as a much more all parts at once. And then law, history, and dreams representing the foundation of what is, the foundation of what came before, and the foundation of what could be is such an important way to look at how Iraqo, how this idea of the terraformed planet of Mars that we have 
grown mutant society, and by that same token, grown human society as a result. It's such an unbelievable way to honor everything about the state of their society. It's something I feel the Iraqi have down a bit better than the Krakoans at this point. Of course, they do have thousands and thousands and thousands of more years of being a society on their side, but I can't wait to see what this incredible creative team does with this unbelievable title. It was such a pleasure to get to read and to get to edit this amazing segment, and we hope you guys enjoy. And if you guys like what you hear, don't forget you might even like what you see when you follow us over on Twitter, so give us a subscribe over at X is for Podcast. Hey everybody, and welcome to another exciting segment of Exit for Podcast, where we talk about mutants, magic, and Marvel week after week. I'm Nathan, you can find me online at Twitter and Instagram at DazzlerAOA. That's Dazzler, like in the age of apocalypse. Hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda, that's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. And this is Juancho, you can find me on Twitter at Lost in Krakoa. And that would make me Raven, a.k.a. Dame Red Thread. I hope you survive this issue, unlike Vulcan's face. <laughs> that man took it on the jaw like a true summers <laughs> <laughs> and if we're talking about vulcan's wounded pride and maybe having a plane to catch that means we're talking about x-men red number one this issue was brought to us by al ewing is the writer stefano caselli is our artist federico blee is our color artist and our favorite Viziana Zariana mayor as a letterer there's so many variant covers out oh. that are absolutely beautiful. Yes. So I happened to get this amazing one with Storm just in her new Brotherhood outfit and the lightning's coming down through the corner. It is beautiful. What cover did y'all get? Unless y'all got digital. Digital. I saw the Peach Momoko and grabbed it so fast. I, I was just like... Cover. <sighs> I get the same one. Yeah. Oh so beautiful. Yeah, I let them have it because I was a nice person. (laughs) And also, I grabbed it first. (laughs) (laughs) The covers were so gorgeous. Like, all of these covers, all the variants were so well done. It really set the tone for what this comic was going to feel like, and I loved it. You can almost tell the amount of covers they put into an issue. It shows how important that they think that the series and the issue is going to be. I got the Torrin Clark cover, like I was talking about, with that beautiful new Brotherhood outfit, and... It's a thing of beauty. With that, the importance that Marvel is putting in the promotion behind it, putting Al Ewing on X-Men Red, you know, having it be the flagship of the soul system. Like, how do we think this first issue did with setting up not only the importance of it, but like a lore for Araco itself? This issue gave me like everything I wanted from this book, honestly. I've gotten so used to like waiting five issues in before a book becomes the book I want it to be a lot of time. But both Immortal and this one, just like right out the gate, were like, here's the thing you wanted. It's set on Arako entirely, I think. It is all about the lore and culture of the Iraqi who live there. We learn new information right out the gate, stuff that was preconceptions by Krakoans that are now corrected, and new fascinating insights into their government structure, their personal culture their code of honor and their red lagoon i loved all of that this is like all of my favorite x-men characters and vulcan 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. I remember that Vulcan is a raging douche, but like I never really had to deal with his ass for any prolonged period of time. Man, this issue, I was like, mm, I forgot how punchable he could be. But I love it. I'm taking this issue as being said immediately after Immortal Number One, and this is just Vulcan being pissed he was passed over for the council. Of course. Well, I mean, he's always pissed that he's passed over for something. That's Vulcan's whole thing, right? Is he's a dictator who thinks of himself only as a dictator? Yeah. Yeah, it's a pure narcissist, like the worst of the summers. I think yeah, he's the worst of the summers. Like Alex comes close, but <laughs> but Alex is such a lovable himbo sometimes. I mean, Alex was a fascist, but he, he was, was like a fascist <laughs> cop, not a fascist dictator so yeah. i guess levels to it he was a fascist cop and then then he became just a oh and then became another fascist cop yeah then he became a different fascist cop. <laughs> <laughs> and then later again fascism runs deep in the summers family apparently <laughs> what no because cyclops was never ever lockstep tin soldier yeah no I mean, I, I think Cyclops is pretty anti-fascist, just as the nature of his of his work. And you know, when you get a pilot, you didn't hear the sarcasm in my voice. Apparently, no, I heard it. I'm, <laughs> I'm just denying it. <laughs> I mean, the man has spent his entire life fighting against a government that wants to murder him. I am not going to call him a fascist, but and constantly checking in with Professor X to make sure he's doing it correctly. When you have an absent pirate dad <laughs> and a disciplinarian father figure mentor who, for some reason, wants to slap you at times and call you an insolent cur? It's not his fault he's an insolent cur. It's Xavier's fault. Yeah, but going back to X-Men Red yes, for a bit, <laughs> what Nathan was saying about the covers, both Immortal and X-Men Red are like the 1A and 1B books, mm-hmm. actually books for this new Destiny of X era, mm-hmm. which feels weird because we actually have a book just X-Men and it feels like so inconsequential. It does. Yeah. It feels like an afterthought. I just want to say that out Ewing continues with this like banger first issues. It was yeah. sword number one and then X-Men Red number one. Like if we could write first issues all the time, that would be great. Al yeah. Ewing does two things super well, which is establish a series extremely deftly very quickly and also do that incredible comic timing punchline splash page thing like he does at the end of this issue again. Yeah. Love it. Always love to see that. It always works on me. What do you think of the beginning of the issue where we see Storm fighting Storm, but not Storm? I'm glad that we finally got some follow-up to the Nameless fight. Yes. Because it had been... Yes. Yeah, I even did like a thing like I, I was talking to Ashley on exports at one point and I was just like this is a thing that's going to come back and people were telling me like no it's you know it's probably just like a one-off thing you know or something like that I'm like no I, I know this is going to be a Destiny of X thing it has to be what the hell it's nice to see going back to this fight even though it doesn't seem as like mind-blowing or consequential of a thing to like hold off for X-Men Red and like go back to but it does seem like a deep character piece and a statement on the fact that the Arachii have a sort of national identity that is founded on collective and shared trauma which I felt like this whole issue really hammers home as like a very strong thing and I really appreciated that it just keeps coming back and there's a lot of parallels between like Nameless and Magneto and the Fisher King and Kobach Never Held and it's a through line that that is what makes them feel like Iraqi is that they went through this they were there you know together never forget Storm I know we talk about a lot of these other characters but never forget Storm went through a 
very traumatic childhood, having mm-hmm. her parents die. And, you know, after that, she was on her own having to wander through Wakanda for some reason, <laughs> ending up in Cairo, becoming a street thief and eventually connected with the Shadow King at the time. But yeah, she has had some very traumatic things happen to her as well. That's why she is of the broken land and eventually because she is broken herself. Yep, she was fighting battles that Nameless knows nothing of. And I think that was very interesting too, that Nameless was wearing Storm's 70s outfit. This is the 70s look. This is her beginning look. This is how she started. Yeah. Yeah, and so did you think that Nameless is like shape-shifting but taking memories at the same time? Because that's... It it appears to be. She takes power too. She becomes you, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why they are like the Omega shape-shifter. Yeah. I don't know that we've... Except for closely, maybe Megan has used her powers in this way sometimes, but like... We have very rarely seen a shapeshifter in Marvel Universe who can not only take your appearance, but also replicate your powers and possibly your memories as well. So yes. that's, that is some Omega level shit right She there. becomes you. Yeah, I, it is absolutely fucking wild to me that Storm is wearing her gala outfit like the day before the Hellfire Gala and fighting <laughs> in the rain in the mud with blood on the ground and shit. Like, I she, love it. She just bought this outfit. She's going to wear it to a gala and she's like, no, nah, I got to wear it into battle first. I'm sure she's like, it costs how much? Oh no, I'm wearing this everywhere. I would have thought Emma would have set it up where Jumbo Carnation would just do it for free for her. <laughs> but, but you know, Oro wouldn't want that. Like, she wouldn't want to be, she doesn't like being in anybody's pocket or under anybody's pocket. Oh, yeah, she would definitely you know. want to be in Emma's. Oh, yeah, yeah, so like, I'm sure she would have gone, no, nah, no, nah, Emma, I, I get that this is a gift and everything, but uh, it's okay. I have my own plans. I, I know that you want white, but that's not going to happen. So, <laughs> I I got this. I loved the rain. I loved the colors going on in the rain. I loved the, the dark the letters everywhere. from from the nameless. Yes. It's great. Ariana rocked it. Yeah. Painful. Oh god. Can we look at the fact that Nameless is trying to fight Oro with a knife? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a very Kalista duel, right? And a knife has always been Oro's weapon of choice when it comes down to it. That is her, like, that's her thing. She can use a sword, but that's not necessarily her thing. But she always has a knife on her. And I love the fact that, you know, this is I am you. I become you. Down to the knife, she is trying to become Storm. I love this. This is also Storm's first outfit, and it's the outfit she wore mm-hmm. in that first knife fight with Callisto. Mm-hmm. And it's also from a time period when she would use a lot of offensive flashy attacks like the lightning, which mm-hmm. she's used a lot. But I love that Storm, yeah, she shows that she's grown in that she can freeze somebody solid at this point mm-hmm. rather than just necessarily flash up with lightning over and over. Although she could do that back then, but... When the nameless says, this is Storm in her prime? Yes. <laughs> but I wouldn't think that Storm considers that her prime. I wouldn't think so. Do you think that's a commentary on fans? Yeah, but I think Storm, or at least for most fans, I think that the best Storm is Powerless Storm. And I think that for me, Storm has always been this like symbol that you, you can take my powers away, you can take my outfits away, you can take my girlfriends away. <laughs> <laughs> and she's still like a beast all the time. She's great. Yeah. And she's still leader of the x need. In this case, the leader of the Iraqi need. So that's like Storm saying, you think I was at my best just because I had my lightning powers, but I didn't need them to be a complete badass. Yeah, I kind of think that like Storm in her current incarnation probably thinks of herself in her prime as she is because she's always growing more and more powerful and more confident in herself and more experienced with her powers she's always in her prime maybe this is like a physical thing where she was like you were 25 when you wore this outfit (laughs) 
But also the nameless says you were in your prime, you were your best self, you were clean. It's before you were tainted by the world, seduced mm-hmm. by power, by crowns and thrones. So the nameless is trying to get Aurora to believe that her best self is before when she was the pure goddess, you know, before she really got super into the X-Men, before she had to kill. Before, before she tried to take Nameless's job. Before she tried to take Nameless's job. So <laughs> Nameless is trying to make her feel that her experiences have made her weaker when... I think, honestly, we can all tell that her experiences have made her stronger, if not the strongest. I want to get some clarity on this. Nameless kills herself at the end of this issue? Or at the end of this fight? Yeah. Is that what happens? I think, yeah. Because that's the only way Storm takes the seat. Yeah. If, if the nameless dies. Right. Well, here's the thing. Is I think nameless, when she said that this was Storm in her prime, that was Storm probably when she had the most raw power, but couldn't necessarily channel it in cunning or productive ways. Hmm. Okay. So I think, yeah, brute, unimaginable power if she were to just absolutely let go. Sure, in her prime, had the most power. Older Storm knows how to use her powers better instead of channeling just raw power at you and hoping that does the job she's like you know the lightning's a lot but i can just sit here and freeze you so that you can't shift i could turn your blood to ice in your fucking veins so what the shit nameless isn't stupid i don't think anybody's giving them enough credit nameless has been on the council and in that position for a reason they're not stupid they are trying to get into storm's head they are trying to break her apart make her doubt her worthiness make her doubt herself they are psychological logically needling her with information that they know could like actually push a rift into her thought process make her hesitate mm-hmm. and she's like damn i really have lost but you know what i'm gonna leave it burned into their brain that this is not an easy job by any means and yeah absolutely destroys themselves by channeling every ounce of storm's power set through her and just with nowhere to go yeah she just killed herself <laughs> Because we talked a lot about, you know, why is it her 70s bathing suit outfit that represents the Prime Storm? If you were to embody both either a look or a look and a time for Storm as your, like, Prime Storm... Like, what would that be? I got to say, for me, like, look-wise, I've always loved the 80s punk outfit. It was just, it was so different for anything that you would have seen as a superhero at the time. And it had a great storyline element behind it. And obviously, she's faced some great challenges. She got depowered, and, you know, she proved herself a worthy hero without her Omega-level abilities. So, like, to me, that's one of her primes. Like, I think now, obviously, is Reason of Soul and in the Dawn of X-Era she was amazing as well and i think in a few years i can think of the same things as both similarly iconic i think she's in her prime now as a character in her power and in her outfits i think they're all at like peak fucking ratitude <laughs> right now she's had two of the best costumes i've seen on an x-man in the last like couple of years she's incredibly powerful she is right now the queen of saul essentially like i know she's not actually a queen she's a regent and a voice but in many senses she's a queen throughout this issue and obviously she takes that to heart and decides to make a change towards the end i think storm is in her prime right damn now i don't think storm has ever honestly been out of her prime per se she's just had different levels of mutant powers she is probably one of the most self-aware characters and and has been for a very long time and she doesn't just think okay i've done everything i can cool i don't have to do any more work on myself she is constantly working on herself 
herself improving how she sees the world, how she views a culture. She's not just going in there going, look, we terraformed this place for you. Now I fucking run it. Like, just shut up and follow me. <laughs> She's like, this is your culture. I need to at least take a couple steps forward. I'm going to have to make you take a step or two towards me, but I'm not here to override your culture. I'm here to help it evolve and I'm here to evolve with it. And that's why I love her. And I think why we can spend so much time just talking about the amazingness of Storm in this series is obviously she's going to play the key central role in it. And she's been such a huge part of X-Men lore overall. Speaking of huge parts of X-Men lore overall, we have another huge pillar of the X-Men story, the X-Men legacy in this. You know, turns out he was one of the three initially in on the Hulk or Cohen plan who who just, I guess, kind of got fed up with it and decided to retire in a nice little farm on Mars. How do we feel about, you know, Magneto's appearance in this issue and just his conversation with the fisherman to start with? You know, like, where are we at with that? And do we love the fisherman? I love the oh. fisherman. King. This guy, he's really fun. Magneto in this issue is so fucking great. That nine-panel grid page where he does his powers to work to make the castle while he talks about, like, his past, it is deep moving and just like it's all like when I tried to wrestle my dream into the world to make it real, it broke apart, shattered to pieces, and they cut me to the heart. There are those who see me as a monster and I can pretend they never knew me, that they were not there. This is like some prime fucking Magneto content right here, just like soliloquizing dramatically while he broods and makes a castle and looks over his shoulder all quiet. And Fisher King is just like a really rad dude. Like, I'm gonna just throw it out there. This is Magneto's Martian Lee Forrester, I'm calling it. Okay. Yeah, Magneto always has to find a human or a powerless mutant that he is attracted to who can show him that he's being a complete idiot and an asshole and he even builds his own little island m tentacle paradise castle there's tentacles yes. on that castle magneto you don't, you don't <laughs> need the tentacles anymore <laughs> he must be reminded of the time he spent with lee in the bermuda <laughs> it's them paying a subtle homage to claremont era he's thinking of a past love of his who didn't have powers while he's talking to this new boy so do you think the fourth panel in that nine panel grid was a callback to house of x number one the one where magneto's looking over his shoulder and his outfit looks white instead of red oh yeah it does yeah. look like like his you have new gods now pose that's exactly what i thought the first time i saw it i think you're absolutely right that was like confident magneto and this is just broken magneto a lot of the stuff he's saying here like echoes a lot of his previous like grand soliloquies but in a more like sad and broken way than he's used to doing there's a couple of things i really love here but like one of them is him being put in his place about well you guys think a lot about Araco, don't you and you know very little you know he's like you guys think we hate weakness it's like how is talking about your pain weak you need to heal before he can become strong again just laughing at him i love that he has such a different view of this than magneto does and magneto's is so toxic and outdated and a wonderful thing is anytime magneto gets to be shown that he's being an idiot <laughs> yeah this is definitely magneto up his own ass the narcissism of it all i've just come here to retire on a quiet farm build a giant castle well you need a giant castle for just one person this is where I have come to die. My autumn place. Bitch. 
<laughs> I, I like that he sees the Fisher King and the first thing he goes is like, do you own this land? And the Fisher King's like, owning land? <laughs> I'm stupid. What are you fucking talking about? <laughs> right? And Magneto's response to that is like, hey, are you threatening me? Don't you dare. Oh my but god. Right? He like... down and he remembers the things he's learned and he gives him his real name, which yes. honestly, that's romantic. I have not known Magneto to use his own real name in years and years and years. I, I've been resentful of the fact that they will not yeah. call it Max, but. Yeah, mm. I mean, even, even his ex, Charles, Charles doesn't call him Max. He calls him Eric. <laughs> I don't think Charles knows that name. <laughs> uh, Charles knows that name. Trust me, he's been in that head. Uh, so what do we think the significance of Magneto giving Max as his name instead of his old previously assumed one, Eric? Do we think it's like just embracing his past as he's planning to sit there and wait and die? Or do we think it's him just trying to be more honest and truthful with himself? What do y'all think the significance is? I do think that part of it is that they're talking about the prisons in which they were tortured you know they're talking together about uh, that's later obviously that's not when he gives him his name but they do end up talking about that and max is who he was when he was there you know in auschwitz and he's in a place where he can talk to other people unlike most Krakoans about the hellish experiences that he's had and share this kind of like bonded trauma of the prisons they've been in. I do think that giving him Max sets the tone of brutal honesty about their traumatic past, but it also is like, this is a new person. This is somebody who doesn't know me. It's a finally a fresh start. I can just be me here. Max is a name without any sort of expectation on it, where Eric and Magneto have a lot of pre-built assumptions and expectations built on those names. Max is who he was way back when. And it's a name that was, you know, born in a prison or, you know, or brought into a prison. It's the name that he held on to just to keep some semblance of himself. And it's a name he tucked away because he didn't want any extra expectations given to it or anything taken from it. So this is a place where he does not have to be an assumed name, an assumed persona. He can just be a person. There's that moment where the Fisher King is like, wait, 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 you're Max and you're Magneto and you're Eric and you're Headmaster? And your headmaster? Yeah. How many names do you have? I don't even have one. <laughs> right? And he's just like, too many. I think it's the weight of all of his assumed personalities and personas mm. and the monsters that people have known him as. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he's just trying to escape that in the end because he sees the mess that the creation of Krakoa left. And that's why he decided was guilty and decided to leave the council. That, that I'm not really 100% sure about, but it looks like we're getting into a lot more of that here. <laughs> then we're taken to Sport Prometheus Spaceport. And we're introduced to the rest of what looks like going to be important members of our cast. So we've got Sunspot there, we've got Thunderbird, we've got Cable, Bran shows up, and Vulcan makes a hell of a scene. And our new friend, Kobak Neverheld. And Kobak Neverheld, who I love so much, and I feel so bad his husband died. Oh my god. Yeah, I love him. I love him so much. I wept for a year, and then ever again. I'm like, dude, that's a little hardcore. I like that. Sorry. Araki, I spend a lot of their time meeting people, telling sad stories, and then being like, I see you, and you have a place in the broken land. And I think that's just so nice it's nice i love how evolved the feelings of the iraqi are like they're not toxic about their masculinity they're like okay cool you know i hurt let's heal let's mend and let's live to find another day
day. It gives real meaning to the broken land, right? Like it's not just a land that was severed in half by a giant twilight sword or whatever. It's a place of broken people and it's a broken society. And it's one that has been healing for a long time and now has a fresh chance to do so with the vote for peace. So I would say that more than it's been healing, it's that it's finally been allowed to start healing. Yes. Because mm. they were still in constant war with Ten of Swords. Yeah, they had been thousands of years. War, imprisonment, people dying and being contributed to the White Sword Service. It's just, wow, they've been through a lot. So there, it's going to take some time to heal. Even though a vote for peace, as we learn from Adil, is going to be followed by terrible things and eventually her own death. Is it wrong that I kind of see this almost as a story about people of color? I absolutely agree in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah please. You know, they spent so much time being pressed into service by others, being tortured, hunted, persecuted, and having to literally fight back to the point where war is very much something that is a part of their culture because they saw that anytime that they tried to be a bit more peaceful, that did not get them anywhere. In fact, it got them killed. So they've had to adopt war. But even in war, they find a community with that shared pain. I do feel like originally we got told or it seemed to be implied that they were like a warlike culture, but it does seem in this issue to be more about surviving, right? Like surviving whatever trauma is thrown at them from whatever world they're even on. Because everywhere they've been has been intense adversity, hardship, and pain. And so they have a culture that is revolving. It, it, it often, I think, seems to the Krakoans to be like aggressive and warlike, but I think it just revolves around surviving at all costs. You have to remember this was a society that was brought up under the ideology of the survival of the fittest, the strongest survive. Whatever oh, that means to apocalypse. Whatever that means to apocalypse. Day. So you have to remember like the ideologies of that family and as it turns out apocalypse wasn't the strong one <laughs> it was genesis the whole time that ideology of that whole family permeated the culture and they were in a land where they had to fight 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 so it just made it even more pervasive it's kind of juxtaposed that with roberto being in issue who is a character who we've always seen as a lot more jovial you know he's got a lot of hidden pain from his upbringing as well you know juliana he lost in new mutants graphic novel the anti-black racism he experienced as yep. a youth yeah he's somebody who's maybe overcome it a little and maybe uses humor a little bit too much to deflect any of his emotions and then we've got vulcan who's got this massive trauma from growing up as you know being like sucked into another universe where yep. he was like experimented on and bodily altered by these like high dimensional beings like i honestly i have never felt so much pity for him he's not good in this issue i have friends who are going to be very excited about this issue and already are but like he's not like a good person in this issue but he is a traumatized victim as well as a monster you know he's he is that dictator he is that person that they fear and adore as he says but he also ends up screaming unhingedly i never died i never died i never died you know like man that guy's been through a lot and it creates a real asshole though <laughs> It sure does. But it creates a sympathetic antagonist for the story. You know, somebody who you can kind of say like, oh, yeah, you're a dick, but okay, I see how you got there. Yeah, he's clearly got some yeah. strong mental instability going on. And then we've got Thunderbird, who obviously 
died on his first mission out and a lot of the backstory that we know we didn't get a lot of his backstory before hit after being resurrected he found out his whole family is dead like his whole tribe is wiped out no. so he's obviously gonna have a lot of trauma and anger issues and then even nathan summers with his overly militaristic ass self he was born in another traumatic environment in abigail brand too even for all of yeah, us be, wanting to hate it it must be hard for her being such a war criminal i know it's <laughs> <laughs> a war criminal ah I'm such a bastard i got so difficult was there any segment of this very traumatic bar fight scene that really stood out to y'all as a really poignant moment or just something that really stuck out to you the one where everyone's saying that thunderbird shouldn't have gotten involved because that's not the iraqi way that was very interesting that was fun right like hey don't help him out in a fair fight are you kidding like that's, yeah, that's like insulting he was just so badass in this issue like there's so many relationships between these people right like sunspot was sort of raised by cable to some extent yeah. cable is the son of cyclops and vulcan is the son of cyclops a man who thunderbird hates but like i was struck by how much cable is talking to thunderbird exactly like cyclops would talk to him when they were on a team together like and he hated that you must imagine how close cable's voice must sound to scott summers's oh, especially God. when thunderbird is talking to his son and he's just hearing cyclops being a dominating asshole at him telling him to check his anger telling him that you know like you have a lot of misplaced aggression and you could have done a lot of damage but luckily we were here like some of that may be true but all of that is got to be enraging not only for like an apache man to hear from yet another fucking white man but also to hear it from the son of the one who told him it before he died that's got the one who turned his brother into a soldier yeah jesus and and then to have cable say that extremely inappropriate line very funny but very bad <laughs> playing to catch. I mean, that. Sorry, you played to catch. Oh, yeah, I was like, oh, 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 oh no. Oh, Cable was oh. going to die. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? I'm like, resurrection protocols. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, do we bring back the old one or do we make him young again? <laughs> so I understand why he's upset. Came back, his entire tribe is dead. His mm -hmm. brother was made, or yeah, his brother was made into a soldier. Yes. Something that he desperately was like trying to avoid in the first place. And they didn't bring him back for decades, like for years. They didn't like, bring him back. Day. And he now has to rectify in his own head, not being there to keep his brother from being pressed into service, not being there to try and save his tribe, not being there all of these years and somehow just feeling forgotten yeah. at the back of the line, like like so many indigenous people are. So yeah, I, I can understand his rage and need to hit something even if it's not the most constructive being told he could learn a lot from his little brother who oh. was forced into basically into becoming a black ops soldier under this guy yeah. who again is the son of the dude who conscripted him thunderbird is not just blaming cable and scott mm -hmm. but the first person who actually recruited a warpath was uh, emma oh hey I, yeah thank you for bringing that up because yeah. like how Sunspot has a lot of weird relationships going on here between yeah. his old headmaster and everything, like his two old headmasters. But like, how weird must it be for him to like stand next to the dead older brother of his rival in the Hellions? We know for a fact that he grew up like reading the files on Thunderbird's death. So yeah, I think 
but I don't want John to tear into Xavier and tear into Emma and everyone else because yes. Scott deserves blame for making Warpath into a soldier. These vultures. I would say that Emma's principally a fault. I would say that, especially since Emma at that time was like a dastardly villain. Oh <laughs> I didn't even think about how like Emma absolutely like manipulated his little brother into becoming a little supervillain. Yeah. 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 And she was really, really scuzzy using Empath as a manipulating force among the Hellions. To keep them too. in line. Yeah. I want to see what Thunderbird does to Empath. Thunderbird kills the X-Men universe. <laughs> <laughs> kills empath comes for emma comes for xavier i mean cyclops i mean i hope he can overcome the trauma and not be the villain of the story but if he is good for him this is a story about relationships here there's some really fascinating relationships that seem to have just begun and there's some fascinating relationships that we are seeing the start of and you know some are not great relationships like storm and brand obviously storm does not trust brand and for a reason <laughs> we all know what she's up to shady bitch and then we've got the relationship between beto and nito i thought that scene was beautifully done that's my favorite relationship in the issue if i can pick one between all the many great relationships, it's seeing Bobby back with his old headmaster, Magneto. His favorite teacher. Maybe not Magneto's favorite student, but absolutely, they, they have such a bond. I was brought nearly to tears by him walking in and talking to Magneto and calling him a headmaster and Magneto's first thing out of his mouth is tuck your shirt in. Have you been fighting? He's such a strict dad. It's really wonderful. I love that this book and that Al Ewing and Caselli remember that, you know, Magneto was his teacher. That was his headmaster. The one that he connected the most with. One that he spent the most time like emotionally with through thick and thin. And Magneto might have felt like a failure, but here is Bobby, a extraordinarily successful superhero, a playboy, a Tony Stark who isn't awful all the time. It's so wonderful to see him grown and with him together. I kind of desperately want to see Magneto and Bobby on a team together. If Danny could get involved, that would be even better. Wancho Raven, what were you guys' favorite relationship in the issue? Storm and the rest of the Great Ring. Okay. Ooh, good choice. Good choice. Do, because... do you like how she's like besties with Iska? I wouldn't say they're like friends. <laughs> besties? Oh, girl. They, there is a, a lot of sexual attention between those two of them, though. Ooh, uh-uh. No, they would not. That's two black women talking to each other. The way I read the tension between them is a sister slash community vibe, like mm. sis. Like okay. sis. So like they're very blunt and honest. They're going to poke and, and jab at each other just a little bit because that's part of the culture. But yeah, like, no, nah, they, they give it to each other very bluntly. They're not besties, but they are good, honest associates. I won't call them friends just yet because I haven't seen nearly enough. No, nah, that is not sexual tension. Yeah, I mean, it was especially from the boats. Because you can see there's factions and forming and how Storm is going to have to navigate those factions. I mean, that's probably the most interesting part going forward. And I would include Abigail Brand in that and how Storm manages Brand. And eventually they're going to find out that Brand is Norcus. So that's going to be inc- incredible. I think probably almost as big as Moira's. Not, not as big, but pretty big. Yeah. Yeah. Although at least one of the council members knows that she's an Orcus, and I'm sure Emma and Charles probably do. <laughs> Maybe. Hey, that scene where Storm is like soliloquizing to herself after Brand leaves and she's in her throne room throwing her crown on the ground. I felt like a musical number was about to break out any second there. Is this what you see? A throne? A crown? Is this all that's left? <laughs> oh my fucking god. <laughs> my favorite relationship is storm's relationship to herself oh because she 
has to take an honest look at where she came from, where she started, where her ideals and moral code and where she is now and how much she has changed. She has to be honest as to, you know, well, why am I here? Am I solely the voice? Am I a queen? Like, what is my role here? What do I want to do here? What does that mean for me? Because her youngest self always had to be under control, you know, because she lost control oh no the world would quite literally have a thing <laughs> yeah. It could, it could be really bad. But here on Arako, she doesn't have to hold back. In fact, she is constantly pushed to, you know, be her true self, to turn that power dial up to 11. Yeah. yeah. And and so I think she's really had to look at herself like, who who is the real me? What is the real me? Was I in my prime back then? Am I in my prime now? Who am I as a person? And what is the perception I want to put forward? So like, I see a lot of interpersonal growth with her and that is my favorite because it means that not only is the character but the writer of that character thinking further ahead about how you can develop a more realized person you know just seeing how far she's come and that she's still that all of her combined experiences are going to be necessary to survive what's coming ahead and thrive because she's not just going to survive she's going to fucking thrive how are you feeling about this outfit for storm i've heard a lot of chatter about the evolution of her hair in this you know and then how do you feel about her costume and her hair i love her hair i honestly love her hair because yes she kept it but she also gave us kind of a harken back to that punk rock era where she was making some tough decisions where she wasn't just using her powers where there was a lot going on internally and she was developing as a person. I like 90% of this outfit. I hate the gaps in the pants that were apparently there just so her overly pronounced and emaciated hip bones could stick out of them. Mm. I will say that this is not the best I have seen of this costume. I have seen other versions of this costume where the hips look a lot better than this but yeah i like the overall concept i like the overall shape like from the waist up freaking amazing i love it because it's a lot of pieces from different eras lots of plays on her station and status and who she is as a person not only as a mutant but speaking to her heritage and ethnicity but those pants are not it for me i'm very grateful that modern or ex- extremely modern hyper modern hyper recent <laughs> x-men artists have understood that Storm's hair should be like a cumulonimbus. Like it should be, it should be like a storm cloud. It should be fully textured and huge and beautiful. Mm-hmm. There's so much more texture in her hair as of late lately. And it's so yeah. lovely. Yes, it's it's amazing to see yeah, the Torn Clark cover. Some yeah. natural mm-hmm. texture back. A specific question is: How did you feel about the coloring in this issue of skin tones? Which to me seems like it was a lot better than we've seen lately from a Marvel. So much freaking better. I think that's one of the reasons I gravitated toward Peach Momoko's cover because oh my god she does her skin just so beautifully with lots of like rich tone and when I opened this cover and saw dark beautiful skin like correctly colored correctly shaded even the light didn't you know lighten her up because like sometimes a blue light can make somebody look very blanched and pale and even that seemed to be reflected correctly in her skin tone I loved it the darker skin tone the consistency of it and 
and her facial features even felt more in line with what her heritage would be like it did not feel like they were trying to lean into the more eurocentric yeah they're not just drawing a white woman and then coloring her darker like exactly exactly they're taking a lot more time and effort to look at features hairstyles you know jawlines lip structure like it's slow shifts over time which i'm actually kind of thankful for because i've seen some really jarring renditions of storm talk about sword eight <laughs> oh, oh, oh that was painful yeah i remember that was a hell of a recording but i like these small shifts a it's giving people a lot of time to adjust but b it shows that they are trying to get it right and right sometimes takes small adjustments over time i'm appreciative of this on so yeah. many levels there's the scene in the bar where you just look at the few pages i love that there is a distinct difference between vulcan's skin coloring and roberto's skin coloring in thank god and warpath i mean in thunderbird skin color <laughs> but you don't always get that no sometimes bobby looks exactly like vulcan does in this issue and that shit makes me so angry like even fisher king yeah he's got this beautiful ruddy tone he doesn't come off as light as eric no he's, he's not he's german still. and jewish i know it may seem like a very small thing to a lot of people but the nuance in skin tones especially across such a huge range of people and ethnicities it speaks volumes to the talent that went into this book what did everybody think about the coloring in general in this issue like i love the rich hues when you look at that last beautiful splash page the difference between the lightning you know storms gold you know the blue black sky in the background like i think the whole art in this issue was just outstanding i think you know may have found a few panels that look like maybe use the same base base on a few of them yeah that's not a problem though I, but I, it's not. I was just pointing out that storm does the same little like lip curl that brand does like a, a page earlier and i think it's just a nice visual apparel yeah. i don't think it's like lazy it's, it's obviously different facial drawing Araco is such a red planet i mean that's mm-hmm. so stupid to say out loud but it's so true yeah. it's an extremely like warm color planet there's a lot of yellows and pinks and like hot purples and stuff like that but whenever storm is in the picture and whenever storm is using her powers there's just like this strong blue from her lightning and from the rain and from the night it makes a sharp contrast like not every scene that storm is in but a lot of the time when storm is fired up in this issue she stands out and changes the entire environment of Araco around her which yeah. i think is like a nice thematic through line yeah and i gotta say i think my favorite like all the art was beautifulness but i think my favorite like the facial work on this is amazing like when you look at thunderbird saying fuck you to cable that was gorgeous cable's <laughs> face when he's like oh what excuse me it just <laughs> it's beautiful yeah i love the fact that you could tell like kind of the different environments the different places you were in you never really forget that it used to be mars yes because of the red tones that they use but it's not just oh here's one red tone it's so many rich reds and gold pinks and purples like it's so delicious and gorgeous and then the line work is beautifully done and the lettering is so good like just yeah it's it's yeah that name 
this fight. Yeah. Extremely good. And Iska has locks. I'm sorry, that made me happy. How do we feel about the team that Storm is setting up, her brotherhood? You know, how do we feel about the idea that Araco doesn't need X-Men? Araco needs the brotherhood. It rules. It's, it's cool. She's right? Yeah, that rocks. Fucking do it. I want Storm's brotherhood right yeah. now. I've been, man, I didn't know I needed Storm to run a brotherhood until exactly this moment, but absolutely. I'm not going to call it a supervillain outfit, but it could be. <laughs> it rocks. It's very funny that Bob is immediately sees Magneto and like this other dude and like, are you two in? Like, the, yeah. he's, he's not even speaking one word. Right, but, Bobby's just like, hey, Fisher King, you want to be in it too? Carries over so well from what we saw with Secret X-Men and yeah. even some of those brass appearances before where Beto's just like, yeah, I want to create my own X-Men. You want to be in it? You want to be in it? If the X-Men are now like the establishment and as Brand says, if they're now doing the respectability politics in X-Men in the Duggan book, like they were in the past, then it is a need for a brotherhood to oppose it. If mutants have shifted from on the run and constantly on the brink of extinction to the dominant force in the solar system, then a brotherhood might be what's needed to balance that out. X-Men kind of use kid gloves a lot of the times, whereas kid gloves is not appropriate with the Iraqi people because the way they do things is a little bit different. So her proposing a brotherhood is basically, okay, we need to kind of meet them on their level at this point because obviously it's only going to get worse if we don't like step up on to their plane x-men could not do that even if we look to like the ideological roots of both like the x-men were there to fight evil mutants and to mm-hmm. essentially like present a good example to the humans for whatever that's worth i don't think it's worth that much and xavier was clearly wrong but like the brotherhood was founded as a way for mutants to protect and support each other in a world that hates and fears them and to do that in a way that doesn't bow to the majority culture and that fights for its own freedom and its own rights and its own safety, you know, at, at for mutants first, right? For their people over before they're going to like try to do something to make themselves love to the majority population. The idea that X-Men was first founded on has aged poorly and I'm actually happy about that because what the X-Men used to be represents respectability politics. It's the, oh no, we got to show them that we're one of the good ones. See, we're helping, we're defending, we're we're the good guys. You can trust us. Like it, it was that need for approval from the majority power. And this is the unapologetic. No, we're done. We're going to handle our business the way we need to handle our business. I don't need the respectability politics anymore. Time to deal with some shit. I love it. I love that she is done giving fucks. If somebody came up to just about any queer person and was like, hey, do you want to join my Brotherhood of Evil Queers? The answer is always going to yes. yes. <laughs> is Kylie going to perform there? Yes. <laughs> the time as the X-Men for a line standing for respectability politics really did end with Kokoa for Storm to realize that a society who's already been through that definitely does not need the fucking respectability police of the X-Men <laughs> <laughs> and, and needs the mutant positive pro-mutant brotherhood is so fucking Hey everybody, Nico here one more time. Now, I love Milligan and Alred's incredible foray into pop art and fame with X-Force Ecstatics, and the return that we're seeing in The Excellent has been such an unreal opportunity to see a work 
respond to the world it helped inform in the form of comics. This is an incredible run getting to come back and make another statement, hopefully not the last. And we hope you guys enjoy as much as we enjoyed making it for you. As always, X's for Podcast drops three times a week, usually some kind of Magic Mondays, X-Men X Wednesdays, and Marvel Fanfare Fridays. But this week, there's just too much X-Men goodness to keep it down to one day. You guys can always find me, Nico, over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I love getting to say this. I'm fortunate enough to be a part of the Young Men in Love Anthology coming out this June for Pride Month. I'm in it along with some amazing X-Men and Marvel alumni like Anthony Oliveira, Terry Bloss, Cena Grace, and more. Hope you guys pick it out. Check it out. You guys can get it through Diamond Comics or your local comic shop when it drops. As always, until next time, enjoy this last segment. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. It's not excellent unless it's being broadcast live, and we'll see ya. Hey everybody, welcome back to another excellent recording here at X's for Podcast. I'm Nico and you guys can find me over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Hi everyone, I'm Jake. You can find me lurking in my corner of Twitter at Omega Sentinel, O-H Mega Sentinel. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. And I'm Jonah and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. And we hope you survive this experience unlike the Splody boy who died and Zeitgeist couldn't be bothered to go to his funeral. That's so sad. Pour one out for our homies. Press F to pay respects. I am so excited. I'm so sorry. It's press X to pay respects and I feel like a fraud. Well, that's what the F was for. The F was for fraud. I am so excited to be here to talk about the excellent number two. One of the things about the excellent is that it really feels almost like a vanity project for somebody involved somewhere along the line. I haven't looked at the sales figures. I couldn't know them. And it's such a much richer tapestry than, you know, anybody even really talks about because like digital sales sales don't get properly reported and there's so many moving cogs to it but i just don't know who this book is for other than me (laughs) other than like this specific group of people it's such an exquisite piece of like time there's a oh god it's a zeitgeist nico i really at the very start of this episode i need to know on a scale of one to the happiest you've ever been how much do you love pood Okay, so like, like, I don't even know, like, so like, oh my god, so now I need to get a dupe on one shoulder and a poot on the other shoulder. This is like, I, and he's, he's like purple and black and he's so beautiful. Like, I am, like, it's hard to put into words how happy he makes me. Oh my god. This book is just exquisite fan service in so many ways. And like, I don't know a single person who is attracted to male looking gazes that didn't think Zeitgeist was at least kind of pretty. And so we always wanted to know what could happen with Zeitgeist. And that's fan service we're getting. And we always wanted to know what would happen if the team came together again. And what's the result of this team's effect? Because something we talk about a lot is the Batman effect. Did Batman create his rogues or, you know, did the rogues create the bat? And it's as Batman continued to be Batman over time the rogues became a little bit less hey i'm gonna hold up this bank and it's gonna be the thing that i do hey get the getaway car going jakey but and i don't know why i said jakey i jake you're my getaway driver now (laughs) it happens dude this is great i love our life of gay crime and (laughs) so you know and then after a while it became like i am the monster from hell and i am here for batman 
<laughs> it's like, oh, okay. I think Batman made things worse in some ways. Truly, you know, he created a world where these things were more possible. And I think about how when Ecstatics came out originally, the satire that was the best episode of 30 Rock ever, Milf Island, did not yet exist. Hmm. And we now live in a world where Milf Island is just sort of regular primetime programming <laughs> on at 8pm on PBS and it's labeled educational. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like, Children watch it. Yeah, children watch it and they TikTok about it and they make fun of people who wanted to vine on it. So I think that excellent as a response to the reality culture that ecstatics benefited from is such an interesting thing to look back on. Jonah, your lack of experience with X-Force ecstatics is in many ways one of the reasons I have you in this room in particular. This book is coming out now. There's someone who's reading it who doesn't have all of the experience of the omnibus and of the, what, like 12 or 14 issues that you might consider essential that have come out in the time since that omnibus was initially released. So I'm very curious how this read is for you as somebody experiencing this book in a very live way. This book is not only a parody, but a commentary on the hyper fixation that a lot of people have on fame and the ways and methods in which they used to get it, as well as how internet clout is a very fleeting process. I will quote an icon, Miss Heidi Klum, one day you're in and the next day you're out, but it's not even a day. It's honestly a few hours. There will be things that go viral for maybe five hours in a day and then you won't hear anybody else talk about it until months later where somebody makes a fringe comment and you go, yeah, that was funny, I guess. This book takes a really interesting look at that level of creating content. It's a weird word that I don't often like to use that often differentiates itself from creating art. People make art to be consumed in a different way than people make content to be consumed. Oftentimes they can be the same thing, but there are times when they're not and they don't always line up. This book is such a fascinating commentary on how this not only affects the people's public perception of what you're trying to make content on, but also how it affects other people. I am like almost flabbergasted by how well this book just gets everything right. Mm. Like it is like a joy, a pleasure, a laugh, a gaffin. I mean, this book is some real pop art in some of the best ways possible. I think it was Warhol who said every Everyone has their 15 minutes of fame. And this is a book that is lovingly referencing, maybe not lovingly referencing, but referencing Warhol, referencing pop, referencing superhero tropes and pop art through the lens of superhero tropes and exploding them and making them ridiculous. And, you know, when we ask who is this book for, I think that this book is very much for people who have loved and internalized and responded to the tropes of pop superhero art and can look at a silly resurrection and be like, yep, that's a superhero thing. Or like the sudden appearance of a telekinetic ability and be like, yep, that's a very 1960s superhero thing. This just feels like it is taking the concept of superheroes as pop art, connecting it to our social media culture as it exists today and saying like, this is what this could look like. This is what it feels like. Jake, I love that point about the 60s, just sort of, oh, look, spontaneous power. Don't you forget it. 
because <laughs> it wasn't Chuck Austin who was the first person to be like, BT dubs, IRL, secondary mutesy, just check it. Because when I think back on the earliest days of X-Men and Magneto was an Xavier level telepath. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he had a magnetic so personality. Oh, so stupid. Speaking of things I love so much, so good. TK, how do you feel about the pop iconography as it relates to this title? I think, you know, Jonah and Jake raise an inescapable point that as much as this is a book about superheroics, it's a book about image and aesthetic as content. Yeah, I mean, it's about creating a type of consumable that is not especially complex and is easily given to the reader, both in-universe and and for us as actual readers of the book, the excellent are literally trying to create happenings. They're just trying to create moments that people can see on a screen and recognize and think about them. And that is reflected in the way that the art just sort of gives you these amazing panels and amazing tableaus of all of these characters that are really meant to be enjoyed and are in a lot of ways, of course, telling a story. But the story is so much more about the effect of the visual than it is like, let me tell you about this complex soap opera like narrative. Oh, but the soap opera like narrative is there and that's the part that makes me so happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's there, but it's so soapy that it's almost facile compared to everything else that's going on. Well, what's interesting, one thing that kind of ran through the original run of like X-Force Ecstatics and, and is true here too, is this idea, these are mutants and they're dying for their human audience. They're performing for their mutant audience. They're putting the, their bodies at risk and, you know, this is their means of survival. This isn't rooted in what's going on in, you know, the mutant corner of the Marvel Universe right now, it's doing its own thing, but it still manages to explore this idea of, you know, what happens when marginalized people become a source of entertainment fetish for a broad audience? What will people do to themselves and to their other members of their community in order to ensure, you know, views, ensure their survival, ensure their relevance? I think it raises a really, really interesting question about how the mutant metaphor fits in here, although kind of coming at it laterally. If I have one kind of sadness that this book doesn't directly connect to the other elements of the Marvel Universe going on and other things going on in the X-verse, it's that I would actually like it if it did have Hoxpox design elements in some way. You know, make them garish. Make them gauche. But like, you know, the hexagons, they kind of like, they're kind of growing on me already. And I love the big wide design of taking this somewhere maybe a little bit further because I don't think that splash page design work that's on the New Blood New World Part 2 credits page looks like pop art so much as it looks like the last time they were regularly doing X-Force Ecstatics and it had previously pages. So I do find myself a little disappointed that it is so segmented and sectioned off from the Marvel Universe, but it does allow it some freedom to be itself. I wonder if everybody dying over and over again would have the same sort of severity if they were like, oh, get the five. I mean, I think it actually really could insofar as, you know, the ecstatics, we're already doing that. We were already dying all the time. And like, we were already concerned with death way before Krakoa ever existed. So to have that and tie it into like, oh, now we don't have to just replace everybody. We can die and resurrect could have been a really cool. There's a lot of ways in which I could see this if it were referencing Krakoa, but staying away 
from it. Like now that everybody's so hot on mutants in their island nation, we can make a lot of money being mutants in America. I kind of thought that that's the direction this would go in when it started. The fact that it's not doesn't really matter to me because it's so not about that. It's much more about like grander concepts and also sort of references to a time before Krakoa. But I thought it could have been a really fun way to make this part of what's going on in the X-Men without having it be a title that has to regularly tie into it. Well, that's one of the reasons the question of who is this book for is really compelling to me is it's a mutant book that doesn't tie into this vast thing that's going on with mutants. What are we supposed to take away from this? This is concerned with different things, that it's concerned with, you know, different ideas. And one of the ideas that this book is so concerned with that other titles are sort of shying away from right now is, strangely enough, totally being open about their methods. Every book in the entire Marvel Universe seems to be about someone keeping a secret. Hmm. Pete Milligan comes from a different sense of storytelling, and he's like, real quick, I'm going to tell you what happened. This is how he's alive. This is how we did it. There isn't a big mystery here that's unfolding so much as the narrative itself is coming together piece by piece. I thought it was interesting that both stories begin and, you know, the first and second issue begin and end with a very end media res effect and both end with someone probably dying. And that's one of the things that makes X-Force Ecstatics as like a line and now the excellent forced to consider itself pretty heavily. This book wouldn't work if the creators didn't have a pretty ready meta analysis of what they're doing. I can't help but notice that if this book is so about characters dying in their first issues and how the characters in the book are like, ah, eh, not a big deal. The good guys are like, um, this is a big deal. And the, you know, the Zeitgeist team is kind of like, well, I mean people die and like it's such an important statement on what's going on in the broader marvel universe right now where the eternals no one's ever really dead and the x-men no one's ever really dead and pharrell no one's ever really dead so i think you know and it's no one's ever really dies but you know still the end of the day it's important to consider that this is at its core a commentary on itself as a comic in the Marvel Universe. And that's part of what makes this book so compelling mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. me. Yeah, I completely agree. That idea that it's a commentary on itself. It feels like it has a lot to say about mutants and superheroes and visibility, transparency, and, you know, audience. Then now's as good a time as any to say that we're officially talking about the excellent number two, New Blood, New World, part two, written by Pete Milligan with art by Mike Alred, who I love this crediting of Mike Doc Alred. I don't know. It's just kind of like, it's sassy. I'm so here for it, right? The colorist is, of course, Laura Alred, who is just as celebratable as Mike's work. I mean, Laura's colors really are what take this to a new level and transform it into such a vibrant piece of living art. Letters are by Nate Picos of Blambot Studios. A little bit of a change up there. And I want to point out that both editors on this title, both assistant editors, are women. It's just nice to see several women's names on a title that features so many female characters, especially one that has such a tongue-in-cheek attitude about everything. So it's just at least a little bit of a comfort there, and I definitely appreciate that on Marvel's end. So let's jump into this issue right away. Guys, I mean, Zeitgeist just straight up vomits on you, go girl. 
that was horrifying. Uh, to imagine being sprayed with acid and then have your face melted off. I don't think anybody wants that. And to think that it's all being filmed in front of a bunch of people where they can all see it. It's not like regular superhero fights where, like, if you're off in the middle of nowhere, no one's going to see what happens. You can get your ass beat and nobody will know. But <laughs> this was filmed. This is in front of a live studio audience. People are probably clapping, cheering, going, ooh, ah. So people are probably vomiting themselves. This book is gross. And that's great. One issue before this zeitgeist is really trying to kind of come for Katie and trying to be this like sweet guy who really wants her on the team. And even one panel before invites her again to join the team and just the hard right turn of just like fine, then vomits all over her and completely disfigures her really speaks to just the elevated level of ridiculous dramatics in this book that are so fun to read and similar to but weirdly opposed to standard comic book stories. There's something really frustrating about that visual of of like half her face melting and this guy sticks a microphone in her face and is like, how do you feel about this? You're disfigured now. Really like dissonant and macabre, but also like very much in keeping with the tone of the book. It's like, this is a superhero thing that happened to you. Tell us all about it. I think it's on page five, that panel where that just jumps away to a two viewing audience members and they're just like, she was such a pretty girl too. The other guy says, remind me, who am I? This is such a silly book, but also a little horrific. And the horror has always been such an element at the heart of what Ecstatics and X-Force does. It always kind of had like a mean-spirited sense about it. And that mean-spiritedness, but it wasn't mean-spiritedness. It was like mean-spirited for the betterment of humanity. It was forcing people to think about themselves. And that is really what we're doing here again as well. But I kind of find that what we're doing is we're kind of holding a mirror to comics in this instance instead of, you know, the chase for reality TV. It's almost like they've said, look, we're never going to convince regular people that reality tv isn't for them so let's at least convince them that being shitty superheroes isn't the way to go because zeitgeist is being i don't know that i think zeitgeist reads necessarily like he's got all the actions of a bad guy in a marvel comic there are ways in which zeitgeist's plans just sort of sound like the foundation of an avengers arc yeah he's just pulling together a new team they have to go stop a bad guy true i mean and obviously his motivations are horrifying but there's something very general about what we're doing with Zeitgeist. He was injured. Okay, I do have some questions about Dupe making Pood and saving Zeitgeist. I have some issues there. I understand that at all times he is chaotic neutral, but yikes. But I don't know. I guess I just think there's an intentionality to the humanity that they are applying to Zeitgeist's story, even if he's, you know, a murderous monster. I think I have to agree with you, at least on the Dupe part of this story, Dupe apparently is this agent of chaos, which is pretty fascinating and fun. But I do think this feels a little wish fulfillment-y in the sense that it's like, oh, Dupe resurrected him from the dead and then Dupe can also fully heal people and Dupe made all these skin suits for people. I get using the characters you have and using Dupe for what he is, but it feels like this is a lot more Swiss army knife where it eventually just feels like, okay, Dupe's just going to be doing everything at this point. But I kind of like that though. I kind of like that there's this day Deus Ex Machina, who is this goofy blob dude. Deus Ex Dupina. Deus yeah. Ex Dupina. You've heard of the Scarlet Witch? Well, this is the Vertigree Vitch. <laughs> Shh. 
And he's going to be whatever Michael and Pete Milligan want him to be in the story. This is getting sexy. Yeah. Oftentimes with dupe, it does. That's the ridiculous thing. <laughs> I mean, all new dupe. Exactly. Sexy comic. My mutant heart. Yeah. It makes total sense. There's no part of it that I can even be like, wait, I have a problem with that. Because I know there's there's going to be some stupid dupe explanation for why it happened this way. Including Pood, which I feel like he like left him with a stuffed animal of himself. But because it's dupe, the stuffed animal is obviously sexy and almost equally as powerful and easily like corruptible and turned into this rotting little monster i thought of it like a raisin to dupe's grape sure the, sure I, who the who knows? <laughs> oh the wine the wine would be so bad <laughs> i truly will not be criticizing whatever the explanation is i'm just staring at it slack-jawed going this is the greatest dumbest thing i've ever seen and it's just that like there's no part of this book that if you don't get it works that's one of the things that's so interesting about art that shows that marvel's taking a chance now i really wish marvel would take a chance on art that maybe is not as tried and tested with like you know straight white audiences and they would take a chance on more books that service cultures of color and minority communities but we can see marvel putting in the effort and really developing and designing a title that appeals to such a unique caliber of reader. I'm going to be really fascinated to read the sales figures on Excellent 1 through 6 and see how they compare on terms of market share and top seller as far back as you know how it worked for Ecstatics because I'm really fascinated to see if this title's picked up readers or lost readers over time. I'm excited to see if they're more trade-based, if it's you know maybe a digital presence because I love this book. I just don't see people talking about it i just don't see this book you know flying off of shelves this isn't in the top sellers on comiXology so i'm excited because it maybe tells me that there's also a comic reading community that we're less aware of that marvel is seeking to include and it includes us ecstatics was the definition of a cult classic this is a follow-up on a cult classic and you know we're obviously here talking about it because that's what we do but i feel like if all four of us were not on this podcast podcast, we would be excitedly reading this book, taking it home and loving every minute of it, not necessarily having a community to talk to about it because it doesn't have the same intertwining as the current X books where you really want to get online and theorize with people or talk about looks or anything. This book is something that for each of us, I think is far more personal and a reminder of the past of these characters and our own general thoughts about comics and storytelling it doesn't necessarily lend itself in the same way to big conversations. Although, you know, if you put the intention in and do exactly what we're doing here, you can have great ones. But it feels a little more private in how you kind of celebrate and enjoy it. Yeah, it to me feels like walking through an art gallery and seeing a piece of art that I don't fully understand, but I'm perfectly willing to explore my feelings about it. Because it's a densely, densely coded book. It's a fair and safe thing to just go back to, how does this thing make me feel? This thing that is, you know, really really provoking an emotional response. Why do I get so upset seeing these characters die? Why do I feel so frustrated seeing this obsession with viewers and this obsession with audience? And why is visibility the thing that they're going after? Why can't they just be heroes, damn it? It's very provocative as a book. And especially as people who have really grown up loving the medium of superheroes, 
it's it's gonna cause a stir like i don't identify with the zeitgeist please don't think that i'm like oh what a reasonable man i think i more see the parallels and how they would present iron man in a similar story if iron man were inexplicably replaced by somebody who just slotted in to the exact same role and moved in on the lead character's female love interest you know that would be like a we kind of saw that in thor during the matt fraction run with his brother and now i can't think of which brother it was but we did see it there there's parallels in how they could be exploring the depth of the character of zeitgeist but instead they're choosing just to keep him evil and that's like one of the other things that makes this book so unique so often in marvel right now we're seeing these villains where you know you understand that they're doing it for their nation or their family or no this is just a crazy guy who's like i was wronged i'm gonna kill everyone but again if we were to switch his narrative and he was iron man trying to come back from something we would root for him getting back into his team so it's just a really interesting examination of tropes and how they play out in modern stories the way stories have changed but the one thing i would say is that it's not quite i was wronged i'm going to kill everyone it was i was wronged i am now going to write that by getting better for myself than anybody else and i don't care who has to die for me to get that I very agree. And I think it's that angle that is where I see the heroic intent a little bit more. And that's a really important note. So thank you for adding that. Yeah, because I think Tony Stark could have that same moment of being like, I was wronged. I'm going to get back on top because I'm a hero. They need me to be the hero. And in doing that could very much do a bunch of really stupid stuff, stupid, terrible stuff to get there. Zeitgeist is a little sleazier, but ultimately for him, it's about, you know, taking back control and taking back the moment and just being absolutely horrible with the effects of it. Was Zeitgeist really wronged? I mean, he no, died. No, no, he was not. <laughs> no, he 100% was not. Oh, absolutely His not. were no, entirely yeah. of his own making. He reaped what he sowed, etc. Etc. Deserve to die, thousand percent, absolutely. And they he make it really clear that. he's the bad guy. Yeah, exactly. They make it so clear he's the bad guy in the original run. Exactly. It's just so wild to me that he that this character is acting as if these greatest bad deeds were done to him. When in full reality, he died. He was secretly resurrected, watched his funeral, and then kept himself hidden for years. That self grandiose idea in fame that I think Zeitgeist is meant to represent mm-hmm. that his self importance to the narrative and the fame he has accrued and thinks he is owed outweighs the logic of nobody wronged you if nobody knew you were alive (laughs) delusions of grandeur for sure did you catch the x-men cameos from the funeral yes of course there's cyclops there's beast there's i think that's lenny kravitz maybe (laughs) and i think a young dale cooper oh absolutely that is 1000 percent dale cooper just to make my entire world feel really good and complete and also i think that might be a young brendan fraser next that does look like brendan fraser next to him yes okay this is a great funeral this could be tarantino behind him too that's what i thought that might be tarantino it's so good and then i want that to be tony stark at the far right with the mustache i was thinking it was howard stark for no reason out of time (laughs) i just thought it looked good on the same panel as him flashing back to his funeral the moment bottom right with the braces on just kind of like seemingly relearning to walk just such a good piece of all red art the sort of like weird rinky dink spinally technology that he puts on people like mike's robotic arm and these just like bracers that are just like the way his body is kind of fluid you can tell that he's missing a bunch of pieces and these just really small filamenty 
plus ball braces are holding it all together. It's just the visual is so oh, it just puts me on edge to look at it, but it's really good. It's funny because it feels like referencing Kirby. Yeah. But there's still this body horror element to it that's very not Kirbyan. Like Kirby was very much about the celebration of form, the celebration of aesthetic, and this is like the breakdown of those things. A point that was brought up earlier in the episode is that this title feels very self-removed from any other current X title. There really isn't any, if at all, interaction with these characters. The only time I can think of anything is that there was actually one appearance of Dupe on Krakoa. So Dupe at the very minimum, Dupe is aware of what's going on Krakoa as opposed to everybody else. I wonder if there could be an issue down the line for Zeitgeist in his villainous ways to try to petition the council to resurrect You Go Girl. I find it so fascinating that we have mutant resurrection and he's spending so much time trying to find a new teleporter when he could be using his internet clout to be like, see, everybody wants her back. We ran an internet poll. I'm imagining dead girl sitting in the background shaking her her head no every time the five tries to bring the egg back and dead girl just going no and the egg trying to come back and dead girl going no i would love to get something like that they don't need to have like full they're the krakoan entertainment reality tv arm but like to have one moment where their stuff overlaps with krakoan stuff in a way that even if it's just a good gag not like the most revelatory moment about what's going on in krakoa it it could be really really fun it's a lot like that time our real x-force fought ecstatic's x-force and like you had this interjection of real superheroics being injected into this I mean, that alone would make it really entertaining to see. It's one of the reasons that I think the series, The Brotherhood, the final issue is remembered at all is because Dupe is on the cover, X-Force show up and kill them. Like, it's the, that's the, the issue. Like, that's, and it's a classic issue from back when this was coming out, like, live. So I think that's the reason that gets printed in the omnibus, why it gets remembered as the only, like, real issue of The Brotherhood, because mm. it's exactly what you're saying. It's this really real moment for this very silly, team it's one of the reasons that uh, ecstatics versus the avengers is such a good story because it's never really serious tony stark defeats guy with blades of grass and that's just the funniest thing i've ever seen in my <laughs> life and you know dupe versus wanda is just such a perfect idea and i think he we find out he's worthy and so like there's just so much to when you take these characters and you put them against such serious characters that can be done i don't necessarily need to see the creative team here try to ape what's going on on Krakoa in very literal ways either. I'm happy to see it through this very refracted lens where it's clearly not going to be what we're expecting. I'm expecting full on Morrison era Xavier in the helmet. That's Mm -hmm. all I'm expecting to see. That's what I associate with this book. So if that's what they did, I would just think Xavier was wearing it for everybody wear your favorite old costume day. And so that's why everybody's in weird clothes i wouldn't care yeah i do think that the introduction of these ecstatics characters into other people's books like the dead girl miniseries was a lot of fun and gave us a side of dr strange a ridiculous like funny strange oh god side of dr strange that we don't normally get to see because he's not really allowed to be very funny because he's the master of the mystic arts and sort of as a juxtaposition seeing dead girl in strange academy where she's a much more grounded version of herself like 
like getting to see how these different characters come in and play around in these more serious corners of the Marvel universe is, is always entertaining. And it makes me very excited that number four, which is coming out in May, has Doctor Strange on the cover because Ecstatics Presents Dead Girl Back from the Dead was like the first really big movement to show that Marvel still had any belief in the line, which is how we wound up with, you know, all new dupe and dupe on Wolverine and the X-Men and now ultimately this title. So I do think that there shouldn't be like, I'm not worried this is going to get canceled early. I don't see Marvel doing that. I think they're in for as far as they're in for. If there's going to be 12 of this, there's going to be 12. Maybe it's because they wanted to put together a second omnibus and they're going to do an omnibus volume two and they knew exactly how many pages they wanted to get from the team. But there is no question for me that what we're going to get is going to be a really complete story, especially bringing up that we've already seen Doctor Strange and we know we're going to see him again in the next issue. I feel like one of the things this team is looking to do at first is set up some pieces, but we're already seeing payoff on old things come due. I have I have a feeling that's what we're in store for a lot of. I would love to know everybody's opinions on Billy. So this is Billy and he's a teleporter and he screws up everybody's atoms and now they all look like Venus to Milo. I think that's hysterical and I think that's poetic. Yeah, I think that that's one of the things that X-Force Ecstatics is kind of always known for. It's known for people whose powers are super unreliable and super not put together. And because this team is meant to reflect the earliest days, that sort of uncertainty of coming together, but we know these characters can't all be coming of age again. That would be so irritating to watch. Giving us new characters who have that unpredictability factor is definitely the way to go. I kind of have a feeling that it's just going to be fine at the beginning of the next issue. You know what I mean? Everybody will stabilize. But it reminds me a lot of those earlier issues where the team was coming together and nobody knew how to use their abilities. And it makes me long for Lasuna. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She was like Omega level on the Omega-ist sense. She could stop time on such an unstoppable level. And, you know, watching characters like her come into their abilities and, you know, really start to be part of this bigger narrative. It was really exciting. And this is giving me those vibes again. So I'm pro Billy. He reminds me of why I like this book. Totally forgot that in my intro, I was going to say that I found the cat's body in Maine. <laughs> God, that is horrifying. I really, I, I really wanted to say that. 